I'm Susan Brown. I'm Michaela Joy O'Shea. And I'm Jay Yi. You're listening to Beyond the Fog Radio. Our podcast about the untold stories of San Francisco's long history from the people that have helped shape it. Whether you're new to San Francisco or have lived here your entire life, join us as we share the stories of our city by the bay. Man, Susan, I wish I was there at this interview that everyone here is about to hear. And unfortunately, I went on paternity leave. But fortunately, I got a brand new baby girl out of it. Her name is Waylon, and she's wonderful. And I cannot wait to meet little Waylon. I cannot wait. And paternity leave is super important. So it was our pleasure to cover for you while you were away. Thank you. We had a great interview that I can't wait for everyone to hear. You know, Mayor Breed is so excellent because she's the first female African-American to be mayor of San Francisco. And she came from the Fillmore, from the Western Edition. Wow. She lived in public housing. San Francisco and the Fillmore and the Western Edition was very different then when she was young and growing up than it is today. I can see that. I mean, even growing up in San Francisco as a kid in the 90s, we were not to go to the Fillmore on public transit. We would have to drive through it because you never know what you'll run into. So we wanted to begin season four with exploring the neighborhoods with our interview with Mayor London Breed. I'm so excited. And I was on paternity leave, like I said earlier. So while I was gone, Susan and Michaela did the honors, and they did a fantastic job. Let's listen together to this interview. Mayor London Nicole Breed is San Francisco's 45th mayor. She was supervisor for District 5, which includes the Fillmore, the Haight-Ashbury, and the Sunset neighborhoods. She was president of the Board of Supervisors, and before being the supervisor for District 5, she was the executive director of the African American Arts and Culture Complex, a very well-known community center in the Fillmore. The Fillmore District is one of the African American cultural hubs in San Francisco where African-Americans came from all over the country in search of job opportunities. Many came to work for the shipyards during World War II and in the shipping industry. Mayor London Breed's grandmother first arrived in San Francisco during these times, and she raised her family here, including raising the mayor herself in the heart of the Fillmore. Here is our interview with Mayor London Breed. My name is London Breed, and I'm the mayor of San Francisco. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, you are. (laughs) And can you describe a little bit where you grew up and what neighborhood in San Francisco? So I grew up in a neighborhood called the Fillmore Western Edition. Susan, you grew up very close to this area in the Haight-Ashbury neighborhood of of this community. You remember how it used to be. Yes. um, 
In fact, it was known as Harlem of the West. Before I was born, in fact, people like Duke Ellington and Billie Holiday and others who were well-known musicians and singers in Harlem would come to the West Coast and San Francisco and the Fillmore was their destination at Bob City and, and other really wonderful places that were hard to get into. San Francisco and its black community was really thriving. When I was coming up, however, a redevelopment, the San Francisco Redevelopment Agency had already done, unfortunately, its damage on the community. There were fields of, of nothing for many, many blocks where many of the Victorian homes that you still see in the neighborhood, uh, they were moved. I remember being a really small kid watching these big houses. It was commonplace to see homes being moved from one location to another. And it was common to see empty fields on Fillmore before the Fillmore Center and Safeway and other places were built. So I was on Eddie and Webster. I grew up in public housing. Um, it was called uh, Plaza East or Yerba Buena uh, East. It was somewhat of a notorious public housing development. It had a number of names, including OC, out of control projects. And if you were not black or you did not live there, you did not come to this public housing development. It was right across the street from the Pink Palace. The Pink Palace was also a notorious public housing development that was shut down when I was a kid and was turned into senior homes. It's still senior homes today. And in this particular neighborhood, I mean, for us as kids, we just made the best of it. We didn't have sidewalk chalk. We just took the sticks and branches that we found and we created like hopscotch or, you know, we took extension cords from the telephone and used those as jump ropes to play jump rope. The, the parks were always broke down, but we would bring stuff or take blankets or towels out of the house, which we got in trouble for, to try and hold the swings together or to do uh, we were creative kids we yeah. came up with all we would take <laughs> sheets and use it to do bouncy stuff I mean like every each person hold it in and someone would we would just throw people up in the air and they would bounce <laughs> on the sheet so we we made the best of it we made the best out of really challenging circumstances and and sadly yes there was the violence and the drugs and the poverty but we still were a community and Across the street was this grocery store called Food Land, and even though it changed its name to Gold Lane and something else, I believe, we still called it Food Land. And everybody would come there, even people who moved outside of the neighborhood or the city to shop because of the things that we would buy, especially during the holidays. You could find the ham hocks and, and all the, the dressing, the greens, all the things we needed to make the things that we love to make in our homes. And so... It was a great community. It had its challenges. Our family, of course, had their challenges. But ultimately, I, I enjoyed growing up in, in a community, and we all looked out for each other the best we could. And what was it like when it started to change? Well, I want to say that it started to change when, I want to say in the 80s, probably, when crack started to dominate the neighborhood. There were mothers who we would see who used to be very active in the kids' lives that were no longer as active. They were unfortunately on drugs and it was very much a noticeable difference in terms of their appearance and going from taking good care of themselves to looking as though they have not been taking good care of themselves. There were the young guys in the neighborhood who were dealing the drugs and of course, 
making a lot of money, buying the nice cars, buying the nice clothes and jewelry, but we were still all in poverty, right? And people were getting arrested. And first there were knives. And then, you know, it got to a point when people started getting killed with guns. I remember when I was 12, Stacy, who everybody loved Stacy, he was like the best person ever. And someone came into this area called the tunnel where everybody hung out. The music played. It was the place to be. My grandmother, if I got caught hanging out at the tunnel, I got a whooping because she was not okay with me hanging out there. And so in this place, there was a shooting one night. Sadly, Stacy was killed. And it it just really changed the dynamic of the community because it was, you know, there was someone else before him who had gotten killed, the Grandy and you know, that was hurtful and really devastating. But then when Stacy got killed, it just, you know, we were getting older and then it was these shootings and stuff like that. And it just started to, to take a really a, a turn for the worse. And it made me realize, okay, well, what's the common denominator here? And a lot of it stems around poverty and what people were trying to do to survive and to get money and to take care of them families. And, you know, the arrest and the shooting and the, the beef and the drama and the fights and all of that stuff started to get even worse. And it wasn't just people who initially were coming from different parts of the city. So there was Hunter's Point, you know, or Sunnydale or or different neighborhoods where there were drive-bys and shooting for the sake of shooting, it then started to escalate into people who live right next to each other, people who grew up together because of a lot of hearsay in some cases of things that weren't even entirely true. Wow. It was very heartbreaking because then all of a sudden you get a call on a regular basis that someone got killed and, and then you also know who killed them. And it went around in the neighborhood and, and it was hurtful because, you know, you, you knew these both of these parties and you grew up with them and you cared about them in the same way. And it was just heartbreaking. And so going to funerals on a regular basis got to a point where it was just, you know, I, I just felt like I can't go to another funeral. This is tearing our community apart. And then sadly, it got to a point where the only time we would even get together was a funeral. You know, we used to have parties or events or we would hang out by Virgos on McAllister and Buchanan. And then McAllister and Buchanan became a ghost town. That used to be the place to be. But then because of the gun violence that was taking place in these various areas, all of a sudden the places we hung out at became ghost towns and the neighborhood rapidly changed because of it. Oh, my goodness. So how did you get through all that? How did it not break you? Yeah, it was it was tough because it, it, it just, you know, in some instances, you know, my brother was kind of out in the street. So I felt like something might happen to him um, and other members of my family. I was always, of course, worried. And, you know, when you don't have a choice, this is, you know, we weren't wealthy, of course. We didn't have the money to do anything other than do the best we could to survive. And it got to a point where it was just normal. It was just normal to live in the situation and to expect this stuff to happen. And it was heartbreaking, but unfortunately, you know, when you heard about someone getting killed, it was never a surprise. It was hurtful, but it was, you know, like, man, this is messed up. And many people feeling like they wish they could get out. And the sad reality is there was a, there's been many of times where, Our community has been so amazing and have come together for various things and activities. And consistently, this has been, you know, something that has really torn us apart. And so how you get through it, I mean, part of it is I threw myself into school, of course, and 
did the best I could to finish college to get a job so that I could afford to get my own place. And still, of course, I had to take care of my grandmother who was getting older and and developing dementia. But ultimately, you just suck it up and, and do what you need to do. And when I think about it, I don't, I can't even tell you how I got through it because there have been some hard times where you think you're never going to get through it, where you feel hopeless and where you feel sad and where you feel like really broke down. So there have been those kinds of days and nights over the course of the years. So that's why being in a position like this, it's still really shocking for me because I lived like that more than 20 years of my life. Most of my life was involved in living in poverty and living in really challenging conditions. And I mean, even the projects I lived in, we never had showers in Plaza East. Like it was, you know, we had a bathtub, but there was never showers installed whatsoever. We had to take a bath. And the bathrooms are small, but also the walls. And I, I still remember like the bubbling from the ceiling and the mold and you know, we, we, we tried to, we would clean with bleach and you, you do everything you can to try and make sure you're living in okay conditions, but the conditions were really, really rough. And my grandmother made the best of it. She always made us clean up and we would do a kicking and screaming, but nevertheless, you know, she tried very hard. We kept our place clean as we could because there were roaches, there was mold, there was, we would leave the stove on for our heat and you would think that's really dangerous. And luckily, we, <laughs> we were okay. But I mean, how we heated the house, we, we turned the oven on or the stove on or whatever, you know, to, to, to get the heat in the house because my grandmother always liked it warm. So I just think to some of the things that we did to survive, it's, it's almost unbelievable. But those things are still in my heart and my mind. And, and I think that's why not only am I... Um, humble to be in a position like this, more so I I don't take it for granted because I know what life used to be like. And I feel really honored and blessed to serve in this capacity and to be in a position where not only I can take care of myself and not live in those kinds of conditions, but I could try to push for change for other people to not live in those conditions as well. Wow. So I'm going to take you back just a little teeny bit What was it like to be the executive director of the African-American Arts and Culture Complex? The African-American Arts and Culture Complex is one of the most important community cultural arts centers in the Fillmore slash Western edition, if you're from San Francisco. And when Mayor Breed was tapped by Mayor Willie Brown to be the executive director of the center, the center was struggling and under London Breed's leadership, The African-American Arts and Culture Complex is now thriving and benefits the entire neighborhood. Well, I'm sure you remember, too, because you taught a film class there. It was rough, but I think eventually with consistency and good programs, you win these kids over. Like I used to be that kid where I was very difficult and had it not been, for example, in junior high school for Mr. Martins, who was the band director, or Sue Curvello, who was the girl's counselor, when I would get kicked out of class, she would have that conversation and I didn't want to let her down. And so you know that having really positive adults who care and who are always going to be there no matter what is so important and providing an opportunity for young people to tap into whatever potential they have is, is very critical to making sure that they go down the right path. 
And so working at the center was the joy of my life because these kids who would walk through the doors, when, the, when I first started, it was so funny because I knew who they were because they looked like their mom or their dad, or I remember them. So I knew almost instantly who they were related to, but they didn't know who I was really, right? So they're like, but then their moms and dads knew who I was, right? So they walk into the doors, you know, with this attitude, and then I look at them and I'll say their name and they'll just say, how do you know my name? Or, <laughs> you know, I'm like, I know your name. I know your mama. I know your daddy, you know, yeah. and then instantly it just, they have to behave, right? Like, she so, knows everything. Yeah, she knows everything. <laughs> so it's it was getting to know these kids and helping to what I feel raise them and support them and transition our programming to cater to them was really extraordinary to watch these kids who were very much challenging come alive on stage or be proud of the work product they produced and to show it off to other kids or to the community, to, to put the light on them, to shine the light on them. I used to always have to leave my office. They're like, come on, we want to show you something. We want to show you something. And I have to go and make sure it's okay and give my feedback on <laughs> yeah. what it is that they're doing. But I was always so proud because they choreographers, dancers, filmmakers, Music makers, music producers, commercials, all kinds, like the talent of these children, I couldn't believe the stuff that they would produce. The one thing I wouldn't let them do in our recording studio, I built a recording studio for them because they really wanted one, but they wanted to use uh, curse words. And I was like, no, I don't want the music coming out of the cultural center. So, so they struggled with that a lot, but they produced what they could in the center and then they produced other stuff outside the center, but really good music. And some of them are still, you know, recording artists and, you know, famous and doing all this work today. So it's, it's good. It's nice to watch them realize that with their talent, that can be something that they can use to take care of themselves. Because I would also pay artists. I would pay even the kids who performed for what they work towards to show them the value of their talent and how they can nurture that talent to take it to the next level and use that as a way to take care of themselves. So it was definitely the joy of my life. We did some great work at the African-American Art and Culture Complex. And, you know, the kids are now adults, but I, I still feel like they're my babies. Wow. <laughs> oh, my gosh. You really empowered them. I love that. That's great. It was a wonderful place. And Mayor Breed really turned it around. When, when she got there, it was one way. And now it's a completely other place. Yeah. And, and a lot of that has to do with you. Yeah. And we, we worked really hard to raise money to fix the elevator, to... Um, remodel the various locations in the building to make it a better quality place that the community deserved. And so we work really hard to get it to where it is now. And there's a decent funding stream. There's excitement. They're now using the parking lot as a uh, space to come together and, and host events and bring the community together. So COVID has really been challenging, though, for the for the center, but but they are coming back. And I, I want to make sure that the community knows that this is their place. This belongs to the people um, of this community, of the African-American community in particular, and they need to take advantage of using it anytime they can. I grew up as a kid, you know, I wasn't a good actress or anything, but I 
did some acting classes in there and a couple of different things. And so, yeah, so when it was, it was the same, you know, the Ella Hill Hutch and the African-American Art and Culture Complex and Hamilton Rec Center and Hayward Playground, those are like the sanctuaries of the Western Edition kids and Booker T. And so we, you know, depending on where we lived or within close proximity or our age, because, you know, after I became a teenager, I didn't want to hang out at Hayward anymore. I wanted to hang out at Hamilton. So that's where all the teenage boys were too. So, (laughs) you know, we just had these different places. And that's really important is to make sure kids have places, they have outlets, they have things that will help nurture them, support them, and let them be kids. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then what was it that motivated you to run for supervisor? So what motivated me to run for supervisor had a lot to do with my frustration with the lack of resources being provided to the community. Because I took a arts organization that was supposed to serve the community for arts-related programming, and I had to hire a social worker. I had to pay kids directly. Like I had to do things that were outside the scope of my responsibilities, mostly because I wanted to make sure that these kids weren't getting in trouble, that they weren't going in and out of juvenile and they weren't um, ending up dead on our streets. I was very nervous about what was happening. And so because I wasn't really getting what it is that I felt like I wanted, I, I, I thought if I were on the board of supervisors, if I was on the budget committee, I'd have a lot of power to distribute resources, financial resources to things that are going to be very impactful. So that was one of the main reasons why I ran, because I felt like there's never been someone who's lived, you know, in poverty in this city in this way during this time who's ever been on the board of supervisors. And I wanted to be that person. I wanted to be that voice. And I wanted to bring that perspective to the table. So that's the biggest reason why I decided to run for the board. Thank you. Thank you for doing that. (laughs) And then now you're mayor. Tell us about a little bit about what that's been like. Well, it's been tough. And you go into office with one expectation and then you're bombarded with everybody else's priorities. So, but I still have been able to accomplish some of the goals I set out to do. And so, for example, I talk about the importance of paying our artists, paying our young people, and that has more to, it has a lot to do with their talent, but it also has a lot to do with knowing what it feels like to not have money and money being a barrier to my ability to participate in something. And so part of what I've been fortunate enough to do as mayor is is start a number of universal income programs that specifically target artists, the trans community and employment and opportunities are disproportionately impacted. So universal income for the trans community, for African-American men between the ages of 18 and 24, and the Abundant Birth Project, because of the low infant mortality rate of Samoan and African-American mothers, providing additional financial resources with no strings attached to those mothers. These various pilot programs that provide a universal income, no questions asked to provide financial support, are, are what I care about because I don't want money to be a barrier to not only success, but to the difference between someone deciding whether or not they'll commit a crime. 
so there are so many reasons, and so I'm proud of that, and, and I'm trying to continue that level of work. Opportunities for all, every kid who's in high school in San Francisco has access to a paid internship because that's important. I know that there were internships that I wanted to do, but they weren't paid. And I had to, and in fact, when I worked for your dad, Susan, I worked for free as an intern. I did 20 hours a week for the mayor's office. And then I worked at that Wells Fargo over here at Civic Center for 20 hours a week. And then I also had clients where I would help clean up or take care of elderly people. So I did a number of things in order to make sure I had enough money to take care of myself, but also the opportunity to do the internship. And um, that doesn't happen in most cases. And so for me, it's important to make sure that money is not a barrier. And so providing these universal income options that help transition people into a permanent employment opportunity or their own business or something that will capitalize on their potential is something I still truly care about. Oh, I love that. Can I ask you what your, when you have a day off, what's your favorite thing to do in San Francisco? Oh, my favorite thing to do in San Francisco is to walk around Golden Gate Park or to roller skate in Golden Gate Park roller skate. Yes. or to hang out at a good restaurant and sit outside and have good wine or go shopping downtown, especially in Sephora. I yes. love Sephora. <laughs> Me too. Um, I always want one to, thing. and uh, To go plant so shopping. I love going to Sloth Garden. So I have like my things that yeah. I do. But my probably my most, most favorite is going to any restaurant, enjoying good food, hanging out with friends, and drinking really good wine. I love to do that. That's like my super duper favorite thing to do in San Francisco. Yes. Uh, same with, I'm pretty sure, all of us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's and awesome. we have we have great restaurants. I mean, like, I went to just recently, you know, I went to Europe and went all over the U.S. and pushing for tourism and conventions and other things. Let me tell you something. They're okay. <laughs> And I'm talking about Paris, London, Frankfurt, Brussels, D.C., Chicago, and New York. And even though we had some good cuisine at some good restaurants, San Francisco, even our hole-in-the-wall restaurants are, 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 are amazing. And, and, and so it's so interesting. I'm traveling, and people do talk about the culinary scene, and now I understand why. Like, I'm not suggesting that these places don't have good food. I just feel like we take for granted that everything here almost is is extraordinary and we expect it in other places yes. and it just does not exist in the same capacity. It's so true. <laughs> it does it's not. It's so true. And I'm not just saying that because I'm a San Franciscan. Yeah. No, because if there was something that I felt like blew my mind, like the way San, I, I longed to come back home to San Francisco to eat the food here. Yeah. I thought like, I mean, these are beautiful cities, a lot of history, you know, a lot of great things. Again, San Francisco... Even our, our hole-in-the-wall places are probably better than some of the gourmet places I went to that are known places, in fact. so It's hard to, to have a bad meal here. And I got, <laughs> people have to know that. They have to know, like, San Francisco, when it comes to the culinary scene, we are really high level. Yeah, I agree 100%. It's delicious. Everything's delicious. Everything. Everything. It's like a food truck. Anything you get from <laughs> any place... It's going to be good. Yeah. So we're really fortunate and, and not fortunate in terms of our waistline, but fortunate in terms of our taste buds. 
that is true. We have one more question, which is, what is your hope and how do you see San Francisco going in the future? My hope is that we do a good job of the things that we know we need the most in the city in the next, you know, 10 years. We build more housing than we've ever had before. We have over 70,000 units in the pipeline. And wouldn't it be amazing that all those units get built within the next 10 years and what that would do for housing and homelessness in our city? That we don't see anybody homeless or intense or struggling with addiction on our streets. That our streets are clean, that people aren't victims of crimes, especially in our tourist areas. That we see a real change where San Francisco just feels good. Walking down the street just feels good. The city looks good. It's clean. It's such a beautiful city. And I go back to my travels and I think to myself how fortunate we are to live in such an incredible, beautiful city And it's important that we make sure that every part of it is that way. And that's going to take, of course, a lot of changes to policies, a lot of investments. But I want to look back and think, wow, look at how San Francisco has grown. Look at how it's changed for the better. And look at uh, the skyline and also how it feels, how it feels to people who come to San Francisco, who visit, who attend conventions, who work or who live here. Excellent. Mayor Breed, it's been a pleasure and we are honored to have you on Beyond the Fog Radio. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. Thank you so much. This interview is fantastic and all of the people that we get to meet are fantastic. Well, in particular with Mayor Lyndon Breed, she is born and bred in San Francisco, grew up in the neighborhoods where she just saw her friends, family members fall to the wayside and die to crack and what was going on during those times. And she was committed to making a difference. And for her to be the mayor now, she gets to say how San Francisco goes, which is inspiring. It's actually incredible because she took what she learned how to do at the African-American Arts and Culture Complex, or what people call the center. Right. And she took it to the next level where she could actually help more people. Right. And the fact that she became the mayor of San Francisco, which is one of the most incredibly complex and beautiful and charming and wonderful cities, bar none in our country, is an incredible feat. Yeah, and really, what has her be successful is the love and heart that she has for the city. Yes, and she actually knows what she's talking about when it comes to people who really need help and need support and are struggling. Yeah, she knows them personally. (laughs) Next week, we have our interview with our guest host, Tim O'Shea. Now, that last name might sound familiar because Michaela O'Shea's husband is Tim. (laughs) And Tim joins us as we interview Mr. Stan S. Floride, the unofficial historian of the Haight-Ashbury. And you can catch us if you follow us on Facebook and on Instagram, that's how you will be able to see pictures of Mayor Breed and pictures of all of the other 70 episodes that we've done to date. 
Also, you can reach us on Google, Spotify, or Apple, or wherever you get your podcast. Thank you again for listening to Beyond the Fog Radio. And until next week, take care now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Beyond the Fog Radio, all rights reserved, 2022.